Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Hello and welcome to The Transfer Window, the podcast that brings you the news before it becomes news. I'm Johnny McFarlane and I'm back in the transfer window hot seat. Duncan Castles is away chasing butterflies on his holidays. Good old Duncan. So I've been called in to take up the reins and rejoin with my old mucker, Mr. Ian McGarry. Ian, it's great to be back. And it's great to have you back, Kaiser Duck. And I'm sure that the listeners feel that way too. Um, You're often mentioned, as I'm sure you can see, in uh, our social media feeds. Lots of duck emojis appear <laughs> at different times. And uh, yes, it's very, very good. And uh, and also nice to be doing uh, your questions answered again uh, today. Now, Johnny, I want to start off with just a bit of news as well uh, oh, before we get into the questions, um, because it's our information that the contract negotiations between Tottenham Hotspur and their absolutely on-form, in-form striker Hong Min Son, uh, have taken uh, a bit of a step forward. Uh, Last night, uh, Daniel Levy, the chairman of uh, Spurs, met with Son's representatives from the agency CAA. They had apparently a very lovely uh, meal in Novikov restaurant in central London. And uh, the deal was discussed in general. The deal we are led to believe that is being offered to Son will be equal to Captain Harry Kane's, which means he will be earning around, if he agrees to it, obviously, £200,000 per week, which is an awful lot of money for Tottenham Hotspur because they have traditionally had their wage structure and uh, there's a pyramid-type structure to that. But Son earning the same as a captain would be quite a departure in terms of uh, the way that Spurs do their business. Now, clearly, uh, he, as I said, he's a player who's scored some sensational goals already this season. Uh, he's the third top goal scorer in the Premier League in this calendar year. Uh, he's already been seven years at the club, and uh, this would probably take him more or less uh, past his prime and into um, the point where he would be looking uh, to sign a deal which would either take him abroad or would be less than this particular one. So a four-year contract, we understand, is what is being offered. As I said, substantial amounts of money. Spurs fans will be extremely pleased uh, that those negotiations are ongoing. We understand another meeting is planned before the end of the week and that that is expected to result in a written offer to Son uh, in terms of making sure and securing his long-term future at, as Duncan calls it, Naming Rights Stadium. So, a bit of news for everyone, as I say, before uh, we start off. Duncan, uh, Duncan, 
Johnny, I believe we've got a question about uh, Tottenham that we could kick off with. Is that correct? We do indeed. Regard- and it's, it's it's a brilliant segue straight into the first question from Murder on Zidane's Floor. I love that. A, I love that handle. Murder on, Z- on Zidane, Zidane's Floor. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, at Dirk and Tyson 11, otherwise known as Murder on Zidane's Floor, says... Or asks, should I say, does Jose Mourinho and Spurs feel like they have a squad that can win the title now? Or will they look again in the winter window for one more piece of the jigsaw? It doesn't seem like they're too far away right now. And Ian, just as you were talking about uh, Son and, of course, Harry Kane, who's been terrific, I had the stats in front of me. And it's quite remarkable and stark just to look at them. Seven games for Harry Kane. Eight assists, six goals, seven games for, for Son, eight goals, two assists. Absolutely sensational. Apparently, they are now the second best partnership in terms of goals and assists between them in the history of the Premier League since 1993. Um, now, that in itself is remarkable, given that they're both strikers. But I think you'll have seen, Johnny, um, over the last uh, four or five games, um, Probably what's been most impressive is the fact that Harry Kane, who, for all intents and purposes, has been looked upon as the archetypal English striker, the man who scores can score both feet with his head, he scores poacher's goals, he scores from outside the box. Um, he's been the one knocking 50-yard passes into Son's feet uh, so that he can go one-on-one with the keeper and and score. And it has been, you know, brilliant to watch, I have to say. And they've scored 18 goals in uh, in seven games so far in the Premier League this season. Um uh they are conceded nine to be fair. Um but it's incredibly uh impressive. Uh third place in the league on 14 points, two points behind Liverpool, one behind Leicester City. Um and it drills a hole right into that notion that Jose Mourinho creates these dull teams, these attritional teams, these teams that don't score goals, doesn't it? It does. Um, I mean, the 6-1 hammering of Manchester United, I think, was a bit of a kind of you know eye-opener for everyone, um, albeit three of the goals were deflections. And uh, I think all teams sometimes have that experience where everything they hit ends up in the back of the net. Um, we saw, uh, obviously, when Aston Villa beat Liverpool um, earlier in the season as well. But I think credible credit's due. Um, Mourinho has um, certainly set his team up to suit his two strikers, and in particular Son, whose pace is just... Uh, there's two things about Son, actually, um, Johnny, which I, I think are key to his success. Um the first, obviously, is he's finishing. He's absolutely clinical and he can do it with his head, as we saw last weekend, or he can do it at left foot, right foot. But I think maybe just as important is most players, and certainly most strikers, uh, have one gear. Very few players can get into their pace and their rhythm and then up it into another gear to get away from their man. And Son has that. And the last Spurs player, I think, who had that was Jermaine Defoe, who, of course, you know very well because he plays at Rangers. 
Um, oh, I'm not sure he has it quite the same <laughs> now as he did. You know what? He, he did. He's still sharp and around the box, but in terms of uh, mobility and change of gears, he's maybe not quite what he was, but it's still pretty impressive for a guy who's 38. Indeed, indeed. Um, Son certainly has that. He certainly uh, can increase his pace. So uh, footballers um, ha- are described in two different ways by their coaches. Either they have explosive pace, and that is they're very quick over the first 10 metres, so they have to beat the man in the first 10. Or, as I said, they have more than one gear, and Son has more than one gear. So he can up his pace at any time uh, to make sure that even if he is being tracked successfully by an opponent, he can actually move away from them and get into the position where he's in a great um opportunity to to score or at least certainly strike at goal. So yes, to answer the question of um, murder on Zidane's floor, and let's hope there's no bodies lying around on Zizou's uh, particular <laughs> tiled establishment at this moment in time. Gareth Neal um, might be in there somewhere. <laughs> thanks to me, he's escaped just before. Yeah. He got buried under the patio uh, with a golf club. Um, <laughs> yeah, look, he's not out with the realms of possibility that Spurs now do have a squad that could go on and win the Premier League. I say not with the terms of possibility, the realms of possibility, because the squad is not, doesn't really have the depth to suggest that they could cope with, for instance, an injury to Son or to Kane uh, or indeed to um, Moses Sissoko, who's also been outstanding since his return from injury and was sorely missed last season by Mourinho. Uh, look, clearly they have a manager who's a serial winner. We know that. Uh, they have a manager who's extremely motivated. Uh, I saw him speak today ahead of their Europa League tie. Um, he was asked about Harry Kane perhaps um, effectively uh, winning a penalty uh, against Brighton by backing into Adam Lallana. And he was in classic Jose battle mode. He said... Why don't you talk about players at Manchester United, at Liverpool, at Manchester City, who when you, and he said, blow them, they fall over. These are the clever players. Kane is not like that. So, you know, defensive, um, almost a little bit of bunker mentality. Uh, um, and obviously, uh, the result in last week's Europa League match in Belgium was very disappointing for them. Um, But they came back at uh, weekend, obviously, to to win against Brighton. Um, Kane winning the penalty or not, uh, they still got the result. So my only worry, and as I said uh, uh, in in reply to the question, would be the depth of squad. Will they go into the market in January? Well, look, um, Daniel Levy has never been shy of buying in January. He has done in the past. And in some cases, spend quite a lot of money. Um, I think it will depend on their form, um, because if they continue this form and continue to challenge in the top four, and and again, it's a there's a big if here. Look like they might be halfway through the season, and in with a chance of still challenging for the title. Then yes, I don't see why Levy and Spurs who. Let's face it, started the summer window not wanting to spend money, then went out and spent a lot of money 
they've seen the fruits of that. Now willing to splash the cash on Son's new contract, as we already discussed. Um, we know that Mourinho would like um, at least two players um, still in the January window. They might not have to be expensive players, but they might. It could possibly give them the depth that he needs. So, in answer to the question, there is a possibility, and in this league, where uh, so far. Um, you have very inconsistent performances and results from all of the so-called contenders for the title, then Spurs are in a good position because they're already in third place. They are third. Manchester United are in 15th. And they've only got Liverpool and Leicester City ahead of them. So I just think, you know, if they avoid a catastrophic run of results, which they can be prone to, as we know. And of course, there is now a term for it, Johnny, as you know, Spursy. It's all gone on a bit Spursy. If they can be more Spurs and less Spursy, then why not? You talked about inconsistency there in the table, and that kind of brings us quite nicely on to our second question from a man. Johnny, any, any, anyone think we're good at this? We do, we do, it, for, we do it for a living. <laughs> <laughs> well, you are. I'm, I'm not sure about me. That's why I was relegated. The, the duck was relegated. But um, here we go. This is from At Bolt from the Blue, who's a regular listener. I remember. Uh, my yes. South Korea. City fan. Yeah, and he is. says, Hi, Ian. After the crazy start to the season, and it's certainly been crazy for Pep Guardiola sitting in 10th position, how many games do you think it will take to have a realistic view of teams' true strengths and weaknesses? This is an interesting one, isn't it, Ian? Because there is a sense with this coronavirus pandemic and no fans in the stadium that things are a bit wild and are yet to truly settle down into a rhythm. I think that's correct, Johnny. And it is a good question, actually. Um, <clears throat> I, have, I have friends uh, who put on anti-post bets uh, based on um, where they think teams will finish. What, what does uh, their uncle say about it? <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> this is why you asked me back, mate. It is. It is it's, 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 it's a classic duck banter. It's just quacking everywhere. Uh, and I don't understand, <clears throat> unless there's an incredibly strong favourite, I like... Let's say, well, Liverpool won the league last year with record points total. So a lot of people will have wagered anti-post on Liverpool. And interestingly enough, um, after a, an indifferent and inconsistent start themselves, they re-established themselves at the top of the league, albeit by one point. Um, fabulous performance and result in the Champions League. Um, and, you know... The, the, the signing of Diego Jota is also already working out um, f uh, brilliantly for them. Uh, more about that later from you, Kaiser. And uh, yeah, and then Man City, when they retained the title um, beforehand, then yeah, I'd say there's sense in that. But from a personal point of view, I would say um, I would prefer to look at the table and at the performances and consider the teams in contention after around 12 to 15 games of a 38-game season. I think that's when it settles down. Often you hear coaches say um, you don't get a sense of what the end table is going to be like until you get through the Christmas period. 
because obviously there's a um, big congestion of fixtures and uh, it does take a toll on players in terms of physicality and mentality uh, and also obviously points won and added problems of, uh, say problems, the added circumstances of players living in um, effectively bio-bubbles uh, there being no fans in the stadium, which is an issue, absolutely. I've spoken to so many players since uh, doors uh, games have been played behind closed doors. And the amount of complaints I've heard, the amount of interesting little anecdotes about how adrenaline levels are not as high because they're not being pushed on by a crowd who are either against them or for them. Um, even one player said to me, um, the reaction of players to something like the ball hitting the woodwork um, is slower. The reaction time is slower because the crowd is not going, ooh, because that's, they respond to that. <clears throat> and it's like, oh, that's just something that happens in training. Uh, you know, you, just, you see where the ball lands rather than you attack the ball to try and uh, convert the second chance. So there's definitely an issue there as well. And I think that's one of the reasons we've seen the inconsistency and the unusual results uh, that we've had in the EPL so far this season. Um, and I think that has been uh, resonating throughout most of the big European leagues already this season. Uh, I doubt very much that um, players in Europe would disagree with the kind of things that I've been pointing out uh, about what professionals in England have said to me regarding the difficulties of playing in these situations. Uh, so, yeah, uh, I would say minimum 12 games, maybe 15. Then we can probably take a look properly uh, and then make a decision about who are the favourites uh, or not uh, in terms of winning the league. But I think until then, as I said, we're at seven games from most clubs right now. I think it's too early. Um, I think it is interesting that Liverpool have been the first of the big six to get their act together and rise back to the top. But I also think it's interesting Leicester City have done so well. Um, Obviously, they fell away at the end of last season and lost their opportunity to play Champions League football. Um, but Brendan Rodgers has obviously reinvigorated his players. And uh, in Jamie Vardy, Harvey Barnes, James Madison, um, they have some real quality that can match um, most of the Premier League. And that has been, I think, a really uh, positive uh, outcome so far. And of course, has, as has Carlo Ancelotti's Everton. Um, although, again, they need to step up a bit as well. Um, so, yeah, uh, let's see. Let's talk again, Johnny, in uh, five games' time or six games' time, and then we'll be able to give a better idea of um, yeah, where we're at. Yeah, I'm going to throw a curveball into this conversation. You know, I love a curveball. And it comes from a man who doesn't like cricket, and you definitely <laughs> do. <laughs> it comes from a conversation I was having with a colleague uh, yesterday about the situation with Ole Gunnar Solskjaer and Manchester United. Do you think, given the situation at Leicester and the, the way they're performing, that Manchester United could do a lot worse than look at Brendan Rodgers? Should they decide to dispatch 
wholly uh, in the way that many, I think, think they will eventually. Um, it's not such a curveball, really. I mean, he's shown consistently his ability to lead a team who don't necessarily have the players or resources of other clubs like Manchester City or indeed Manchester United to challenge for the title. He did it with Liverpool famously, obviously, uh, in 2013. Um, he also um, did it with Leicester City last year. He's showing it again this year. He won multiple titles with Celtic, although obviously a lot of people would dismiss you know, the fact that Scottish football doesn't have as um, high a competitive level as, as England does. So I would say that um, <clears throat> the United could do worse, a lot worse, than look at Brendan. Um, but as Brendan said to me once, and I'm not telling tales out of school here, um, if you remember, he turned down Liverpool's first offer when he was at Swansea City. And he did so because he wasn't given enough, given enough guarantees for him over the control of player recruitment. <clears throat> Liverpool altered their stance and came back with a different proposition. Um, and in speaking to him at the time, this was before he took the job, he said, it's a big decision for me, Ian, because in my career, uh, I have to think, if I manage Liverpool, will I ever get a chance to manage Manchester United? Because there is no history there mm -hmm. of a coach having managed one, managing the other. Um, I think things have changed slightly, but you could, you'd have to say that history dictates that that would not be a particularly popular appointment amongst Manchester United fans, given his history at Liverpool. But at the same time, look at the mess that Edward Wood and co have made of recruitment since Sir Alex Ferguson's departure seven years ago. Um, you know, they've gone through several head coaches, uh, none of whom have been successful in terms of winning the league. Jose Mourinho has been the most successful in terms of trophies. Uh, they've got one now in Ole Gunnar Solskjaer who has failed <clears throat> to win uh, any of his first four home league games in charge at the beginning of the season, something which you have to go back to 1972 to um, see a similar failure. Uh, that was a season when Manchester United finished 18th in the old first division. So as much as Solskjaer gets praise um, and is defended by former colleagues, etc., um, I am constantly amazed by Manchester United fans who defend his record simply on the basis that this is a club that is used to succeeding. And I noticed as well that Ryan Giggs um, said he believed that United might not win another title for in the next 20 years. I mean, this is Ryan Giggs. He won 13 Premier League titles. He was assistant manager to Louis van Gaal. Um, and he's saying, I don't think, and United haven't won a title for seven years, remember. So that means another 13 at least, if not more. And to me, that sounds kind of a bit like a lot of my United fans 
Now they're desensitized to losing um, when, in actual fact, they should be demanding winning. Ian, let me, let me jump in there because this is a perfect segue into another question that we have from uh, a listener called Trevor at Trevi7. He said, Gary Neville again blamed the board and the players for United's loss against Arsenal. Apparently, Ole has not been backed in the transfer window and needs more time. He goes on to talk about the fact that Arsenal have an identity. And he says, you know, does the lack of uh, Jadon Sancho arriving from Dortmund, does that really justify the lack of an identity at United, especially in comparison with the way Arsenal play? Because you just can tell what Mikel Arteta has brought to that team. You don't need to be a tactical expert to watch it and to see exactly what he's bringing to that club. Whereas at Manchester United, it's quite different, isn't it? Yeah, big shout out to Trev. Uh, Trevor. He's a keen listener. Um, thanks for your question, uh, Trevi. Um, look, all our regular listeners will know that you know the Duncan in particular has been you know very critical of uh, the Man United ex players who um, continually defend Solskjaer um, in a way that it's like. Oh, does he not pick the team? Does he not set the tactics? Does he not um, set the team up in the formation? Does he not make the substitutions, etc.? Because that's his responsibility. And yet it's always, always someone else's fault when Manchester United lose or get a bad result. It's always someone else when it comes to likes of Roy Keane or Gary Neville or Paul Scholes, etc., etc. It's a, it actually becoming a bit boring. It really is. Um, because they're quite happy. As, I thought Keane went as far as he's ever gone the other night where he sort of said, you know, Ollie is going to get sacked the way this is going, but I absolutely take your point. Uh, you hang know. on, Johnny. Johnny, he said, these players will get Ollie the sack. Mm. He didn't say Ollie will get the sack because he's rubbish at his job. He actually said, these players will get Ollie the sack. That will be the outcome of this. Now, look, most managers know that their job depends on the players uh, performing, but it is their job to get the players performing. And it's their job to, as I said, make the right team selections, tactics, set up, substitutions, changing um, tactics in in game if you are struggling with the match, et cetera, et cetera. And Solskjaer's already lost as many games this season as Mourinho lost in his time between 2016 and 2018 at Manchester United. Now, that just seems ridiculous. It really does. But that's where we are. So I think it's a difficult one. I think Solskjaer has been back to the transfer market. I don't think necessarily he has been um, given the players, I say given, but the players that have been bought were necessarily his first choices. But I cannot tell you an elite football club currently operating in Europe where the manager gets to make the final decision on every single player that's bought. It just doesn't happen anymore. It used to happen under the days of Sir Alex Ferguson and Arsene Wenger, but those days are gone. So it doesn't happen. So Solskjaer knows that. So then what happens? Um, He gets Donny van de Beek. Doesn't play him. You know, he's... Now, we know Van der Beek's a wonderful talent, 
we know that he's made an impact every time he's come on for Manchester United and, and as a sub or played, but he's, he's being underused when United need creativity in central midfield in games where they're failing to um, pick the lock of, a, of an opposing team. And it just seems slightly odd. Whether or not it's a protest, I don't know. I don't think Solskjaer is a kind of... He's never struck me as a kind of man or manager who protests against his bosses or certainly makes even a significant gesture like dropping a player that cost, you know, £38 million um, because it wasn't the one that he wanted. So I I don't buy that theory. Um, I do think as well that with Solskjaer and, you know, to answer Trevor's question as well about the ex-players, loyalty to a former teammate is fine and you find it in football again and again. I've lost count of the amount of interviews I've done with footballers um, and I've asked them about someone who's obviously still playing but maybe having a rough time or whatever and them saying to me all positive things and then saying, no, this is going to be a positive piece, isn't it? You're not going to like slag him off. And you're like, well, you can't dictate the agenda of the interview. You agree to the interview in the first place. So if the guy is having a bad time, then it's up to you what you want to say about him, but you can't tell me what to write. Now, that's the kind of thing that we're seeing in action here in terms of TV punditry with these ex-players. What I don't get is, as I said, it's getting a bit boring, is I think it's now becoming a little bit um, uh, ridiculous and wearing um, because you see on social media a lot of fans, including Manchester United fans, saying this is, you know, you can't continue to defend Solskjaer when the results don't uh, reflect your defence of him. Um, and the way that things have gone. So, as I said, I understand why he's been defended, because the dressing room has always been this sacred space. But they're being paid to do a job as well, Johnny. And if they're not doing the job properly by being objective and saying, yeah, this was poor by the manager or whatever, the way they do it, but other managers, by the way, there's never any, you know, um, uh, opportunity that they don't take to criticise other managers. But Solskjaer, as Duncan loves to say, is the precious one. <laughs> well, let me take this in a slightly different direction because it's intrinsic to this question. Just on Arsenal, Ian, and their identity, they're sitting in ninth place. Uh, they've lost three out of seven games. Uh, I mean, do you think now in modern football that, that having an obviously identifiable style of play and a, and a modern outlook and a clear path gets you away with a lot of stuff nowadays that you perhaps wouldn't have 15, 20 years ago? I think people see a lot to admire in the way that Mikel Arteta has um, imposed his vision on this Arsenal team. Um, I'm not convinced by them as yet, and I don't think a lot of people are. They have had bad results and bad performances. They've had some very good ones and some very important ones as well. However, 
Um, they've yet to prove themselves to be genuine title challengers. They may be in ninth, but they're only four points behind Liverpool. So, you know, that's not a lot in terms of um, making up the gap. With Arteta, um, he's, this is his first managerial job. He was Pep Guardiola's assistant at Manchester City. Um, he was a very fine player, as you well know, Johnny, um, uh, at Rangers and at Everton and at Arsenal uh, and at Barcelona. Um, and he is someone who clearly does have a philosophy of football that people can identify with. I think if you watch um, Arsenal press high up the pitch uh, on the opposition uh, box and half, they're very effective at it. But maybe even more impressive is the way they play out from the back as well. Yes, they've made some mistakes, individual errors, which have led to goals and goal chances being created. But they're incredibly calm on the ball and they don't give away possession that easily. So I think with Arteta, um, the identity aspect uh, compared to Manchester United, where Solskjaer chops and changes formation, um, plays sometimes with a, def- a low defensive block and on the counter, sometimes he plays 4-3-3 and it's all swashbuckling and amazing, etc., etc. He seems to switch and switch. And so the identity, or at least the perception of identity, gets blurred and lost. Whereas what Arteta's done is, and this, of course, is how most great teams function. Everybody knows their job. Everyone knows what they're supposed to do. Everyone knows where they're supposed to be. Everyone knows exactly how they're going to carry out the game plan. With Manchester United, it looks more chaotic. As I said, it can change from week to week, from game to game. Uh, The personnel change quite a lot. Um, It just doesn't seem to be the same solidity. And so the the identity idea um, in terms of comparison between the two, I think is very much based on what you can see in the evidence with with your own eyes. So um, even though, as you say, and you point out, Arsenal are, are ninth, Manchester are fifteenth, but there seems to be a momentum about Arsenal, albeit not a, not a great one, not a kind of they're going to win the league momentum, but a kind of upward mobility that United don't appear to have because the results are so inconsistent and so up and down. Yeah. So if you. If you Imagine a graph. Imagine a gra- everyone loves a graph these days, Johnny. Uh, just ask Sir Patrick, Sir Patrick Valance. Uh, <laughs> Ars- Arsenal would be on a kind of, kind of gentle upward curve, and United would be trough peak, trough peak. Yeah, the, the reason I, I kind of honed in on that, Ian, was just because sometimes I get the sense that a big club like Arsenal, you know, ten years ago, it would have been you need to hit the ground running when you come there as a manager. I think almost now, strangely, perversely, there's a little bit more patience for managers coming in. Uh, I know that Mikel Arteta was taken over from an unsuccessful manager in Unai Emery, but but at the same time, Arsenal, you, you know, you can't underestimate how big a club they are. You know, they're one of Europe's biggest clubs. So so I think it's interesting that because that identity is stamped all over the team, and I agree with you, 
it is impressive to watch when it clicks. That that it seems to have um, it seems to have uh, allayed some of the pressure over a couple of the bad results they've had. Now that said, I suppose they did win the uh, the cup, so there you go. Um, but well, you know what? yeah, I'm going to move on. I'm going to move on there to our, our heroes and villains now. Um, mine's dead easy, Ian. My hero is dead, dead easy. I'm going to go for Diogo Jota because I have to face up and be 100% honest. I was a bit perplexed when Liverpool splashed out, what was it, 40, 41 million pounds from this guy from Wolves who kind of was one of these uh, one goal and five type players. And, 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 and yes, he was a tidy player. Yes, he's good on the ball. You know, He's clearly a quality player, but Liverpool standard, not for me. I didn't think so at all. I couldn't see it. But you know what this goes to show, Ian? It goes to show that Jurgen Klopp knows a little bit more about football than I do. Because I thought last night, absolutely. A bit bit nerdy (laughs) thought that was the case, Johnny. Everyone was was thinking the exact opposite of that. (laughs) It was a shock to me only. Um, But, you know, absolutely tremendous last night. Obviously, that that little dink shot with his left foot uh, for the first scores with his right with the second you know a, a terrific hat trick so um, well done to Diogo Jota for proving me wrong I love him I must admit um, I thought Liverpool had made a massive error Johnny when they failed to convert uh, Timo Werner um, having put so much work in to uh, romancing him seducing him to come to Anfield um, I think he is uh playing well at Chelsea and will become better and maybe they will still live to regret that but uh, look here's here's a a small personal anecdote for you Um, I have played with current pros or ex-pros in different matches on occasion I've even managed to train with a couple of professional teams um, in my 20s when I was still fit enough to do so and even I look quite good playing with good players. Uh, and, uh, and what Jota proves is you are a better player playing with better players. And I think, you know, as brilliant he was at Wolves, um, he is going to be sensational at Liverpool. And Liverpool needed and have needed a point striker, a number nine, um, to take the pressure off Firmino, Salah and Mane. Not that they need the pressure taken off right now, but... You can't expect those three players to play, you know, all the games as they have done in the past three seasons, and not get injured or weary or need a break. So uh, I'm with you on on that in terms of hero. Um, and my villain um, is going to be go back to Mr. Roy Keane uh, for his uh, absolute. Um, let's just say Roy denial is ju- not just a big river in Africa. But you're certainly in it. You're swimming and you're drowning. And so are your other ex-teammates who are defending Gunnar Solskjaer. Uh, You are a man who is respected for your forthright opinions, for being honest and telling the truth and effectively telling other people in the game what you think and what they're doing wrong. And yet you still fail to see it. Um, I don't know why. Uh, I'm just wondering if Ollie's got like some really, I don't know, strange um, uh, information about all of his ex-teammates uh, that, he's had, that he's got up his sleeve to make sure that he gets defended. But whatever it is, it's clearly um, something which is mesmerising them because they obviously 
can't see or fail to speak the truth. Well, uh, you know, I'm too scared to actually back you on that. I've got to be honest, uh, Mr. Keane is a terrifying individual, so I'll I'll leave you out on a limb criticising him there, Ian. Um, And call time on this podcast, which I have thoroughly enjoyed joining you on. Um, So thank you for having me. And uh, to our listeners, if you liked what you've heard, please give us a five-star review on iTunes. And of course, mention my name, because uh, I have an ego the size of a house. Um, but uh, probably well, the house likely- an eagle. <laughs> <laughs> probably you're more likely to, to say that you like Ian and Duncan to be fair but, but these things in life you just have to get on with you can subscribe to the Transfer Window podcast on YouTube this is all new to me but apparently if you turn on your notifications you will get an alert when it becomes available please join in the discussion with us there on at Transfer Podcast on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter I'm on at Johnny R. McFarlane. Ian's on at Garbo SG. And if you want to bother Duncan while he's on his holidays, which I suggest you do, you can get him on at Duncan Castles. Until next time, thanks for listening. (laughs) 